Yep. I said it before and I'll say it again. That scene, that last scene. What does it mean? I'm the dude, you know? Get the fuck out of here. No, I cannot. It's over. Go home. That final scene starts now. Well, hello and welcome to another episode of the That Final Scene podcast. My name is Sophie and I'm your host and I'm joined by... My co-host, Ben. Yeah, just one of us this week. No no Simon this week. We are one man down. We are, yeah. Simon has disappeared off to a far, <laughs> far away. I actually don't know where he is. I was going to ask, do you know where he no, is? No, I haven't said. I haven't. We, we've been told Simon's on holidays. We don't know where. What if I'm he's I'm guessing lying? he's on like a metal detector holiday or something like that. You know, <laughs> when people go away and they hire metal detectors and just trawl beaches. Probably doing that in like Sardinia or something. It's interesting because he did just text us um, good luck with our recording, yes, but at the same time, I have a feeling that he's not telling us the full story. No, I don't think so. Definitely <laughs> not. I mean, Simon's definitely a man of mystery, something I've come to know uh, over my time knowing him. I'm sure you know it as well, Sophie, but yeah. Yeah, we don't know where he is, so it's just the two of us today. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm sure he's got it to be missing the episode, and one thing that I wanted to clarify from the get-go is that I know in the last episode we did say we're going to talk about Night on Earth. Oh, yeah. Yes. Um, but we wanted Simon for this one, so you have a bit more time to watch it, and please do. I I don't know if you got the chance to watch it just yet, but no, I, I just haven't been able to watch it yet. Yeah, Winona Ryder is just incredible in it, so do watch it. Um, in any case, today we're gonna talk about a film from a director that I know is a top favorite within the community, and that is no other than Stanley Kubrick. Or Kubrick, don't DM us. I think they're both correct. I would say Kubrick, but I don't know. I feel like Do people will DM us that it's Kubrick or something. It, I feel like, well, I feel like it's both. I think I read that. How can it be both? I, I, I did some research <laughs> because we got some voice notes where like mostly Americans that call him Kubrick. But I okay. think Kubrick is what we call him over here in England. Yes. Um, but I can't confirm. Anyway, I think they're both fine. Um, in any case, the director's filmography is actually quite famous for its final scenes. I think that there are quite a few directors that don't care as much about the ending of their films, more about the journey, like David Lynch, for example. But I feel like with Kubrick, it's always been very intentional, the way mm. he was going to end something. So I'm really excited to dive in. So the movie we're going to talk about today is Full Metal Jacket, the 1987 war epic. And it was actually the also the final film that Kubrick got to see released during his lifetime. Oh, okay. He also he did Eyes Wide Shut, but he didn't actually yeah. get to the Some ending of the shooting. trivia that you were asking for yes. there. There's a bit of trivia that I didn't know. Throw back to the Instagram page. There you go. Um, so there is a lot to talk about when it comes to that film's ending. But yeah, as I said, we also received a few voice notes. So we're quite excited to get to that. But before we do that, let's talk films and TV shows. Ben, what have you been watching? Uh, so I'm still watching The Boys, which is uh, which is ticking along at pace to uh, this week's episode, which will be out by the time we've released it. But it's the uh, episode that everybody's been talking about since they announced season three, which is the Hero Gasm episode, uh, which is going to be interesting by the sounds of things. Uh, and I've been watching Obi-Wan, which I finished today, which I really enjoyed. Uh, people might come at me for that. I don't know. I don't think so. I think it's been pretty well received. And then I saw um, on top of watching, 
FMJ for the podcast, uh, I saw Good Lithuania Grant on uh, Monday night, which was pretty awesome. I really yeah. enjoyed it. What um, did you think? I like, yeah, I just really enjoyed it. It was just, it's a really kind of, it's like, it has a really positive message. It's a really nice film. I think the performances in it are brilliant. Like both Emma Thompson and uh, Daryl McCormick yeah. are both fantastic. Nice to see a bit of Irish representation in there as well. Uh, I thought he was great. Um, what do you think of his accent? He's actually Irish, right? Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. Cool. I don't think I feel like he's not like hamming it up or anything like that. He's not like it's sad though. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's nice, um, and yeah, I thought they were both fantastic. I mean, it it says a lot for like minimalist filmmaking, considering the whole thing takes place over four meetings in a hotel room, and then also the restaurant of a hotel. It, like fantastic it's all you needed. It didn't need to be bouncing around the place from like her place to this place to that place. It was really well done. And it just tells this really kind of nice story about, you know, you know, acceptance of yourself and, mm-hmm. you know, and Emma Thompson and what, and what, like what she's looking for after the death of her husband. And then um, Leo's kind of background and who he is mm-hmm. and how she goes digging into that as a, mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and how that and how that turns around and how that's such, you know, how that's such a private thing for him. Like that scene in in, um, in meeting three where they have that kind of confrontation is brilliant you know it's it's so good and you can like i've never seen more real backtracking from an argument you know like you can automatically see no no like i no it's me too and yeah i just me and my partner went to see it and i just thought it was great i just because i know you've you you saw it quite a while ago didn't you yeah i saw it at berlinale a few months back nice. in berlin um and it was a standout film for me at the festival i just thought when you think about it, it's a story about taboos in a way, isn't it? Mm. Oh, because yeah. Because at the, at the end of the day, for those who haven't heard of the film, the film is about the aging widow, let's say. Is is Emma Thompson at her like, late 60s or early so. 70s, maybe? Yeah, I think so. Um, and she realizes she's never had an orgasm, so she hires a sex worker to do the deed. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and this is how the film kind of starts. And as you said, like the film for the most part is almost like single set location because it was shot during the pandemic. So they had to kind of get creative, which I feel like one of the good things coming out of the pandemic is that we look back and we see all of the creative ways filmmakers had to um, approach filmmaking, which is interesting. And the reason I liked it was because it's the kind of taboo that I'd never seen before in a film that's kind of commercial it's like I mean let's face yeah. it I mean you have Emma Thompson it's not yeah. like you know a, an indie like movie coming out of nowhere with the no movie. I mean she's she's the she's Miss Trunchbull in the new Matilda movie you know she's got exactly. she's got like an Oscar behind her she's got a lot of star power <laughs> yes exactly and it's great to see someone like her still taking risks like at this yeah. point she has nothing to prove like people like her like Meryl Streep like they have nothing to prove but still like no. she's she also I don't know if I'm spoiling bit too much but she has a nude scene like yeah. she goes full Most frontal Meryl Streep in, uh, in Don't Look Up there you, Don't Look Up yeah th- there you go it's so like to normalize this kind of thing is um, is interesting but also like yeah to your point to on the sex worker side like Daryl Daryl Mark Cormack's uh, character I don't remember like what is his actual name do we get to find his name out? is his name is Connor I don't think you find out his uh, I don't think you find out his second name you just you just right. know that she she calls him Connor yes and that's like the snap for him that's when he's like breach of privacy you know? yeah I I was very surprised to see 
that they went there when it comes to like all of the reasons you end up becoming a sex worker. Like what are yeah. the reasons? What are your motivations? Like what are your gratifications out yeah. of like doing what you're doing? Because I feel like I, to be honest, like entering the film, I was like, oh, we're only going to see her side. It's going to be like a feminist film about her. Yeah. Like he's going to be very stereotypical. And I was kind of pleasantly surprised that we went into Much his... Much more of a give and take. Yeah. Yes, for sure. So yeah, it's out in the UK. I have no idea like what's happening in terms of the rest of the world, like, release date wise. I have a feeling it's out in the US. Um, Yeah, but it's going to be a fairly big release so keep an eye on it good luck to you leo grand definitely go and see it it's it's brilliantly funny as mm. well for for a film that has you know a lot of um serious notes in it it's tremendously awkwardly funny at times in a really kind of honest way mm. you know it's not poking fun at a woman who you know as she talks about in the film has never had an orgasm before and has never explored her sexuality in that way it does it in a really kind of uh, subversive yeah, yeah yeah and and the soundtrack is fantastic there's a couple of there's a couple of tracks in it that just work does it like there's a there's a dance scene in it and it's just it's perfect like it's so i, I like i always appreciate you know good mu- uh good music in a film so i was uh pleasantly um surprised by kind of how good the soundtrack was and yeah as i say it even just looked like for for a pan uh, you know a, a film shot over the pandemic in one room it looks really nice as well like it's really clean you know it doesn't really have a kind of like a kind of hazy like indie feel to it like it feels just yeah really nice and clean i did think at the start it doesn't really look like london that's the one thing i would have said mm. when he when he leaves the coffee shop at the start he looks like he's in like berlin or that's like true. amsterdam or something like that has a bit more of a kind of a european vibe but the, the only the only indication that you get to it being in london is that it looks out the window at one point and there's battersy power station <laughs> I was like, oh, I wonder where that's supposed to be. But um, yeah, that would be that would be my one critique of overall a fantastic film. Yeah. You know, I really hope Emma Thompson gets some award nods, awards um, nods for it next year because she definitely deserves it. And, you know, Daryl McCormick as well. I thought, you know, as a kind of breakout performance from him into kind of film and stuff, obviously he's just been in, um, I think he's just been in Peaky Blinders. I'm almost certainly has been. Mm-hmm. Um, but this like feels like, puts him on that kind of puts him out there as yeah. um as a really kind of strong talent to have uh, to have and stuff and listen like all good young actors he'll end up in the mcu eventually i'm sure i mean that'll be the next step but um yeah uh, he I could be the great. next hercules i mean yes i've that, that we should talk about that, that. yeah uh, why is guy ritchie directing hercules uh, well, he did Aladdin, didn't he? I think. I think so. Uh, yeah. So. So exactly. Why I, is Guy, Why is Guy Ritchie directing I, Hercules? I don't know what kind of. I don't know what has driven him to do animation films all of a sudden. I'm kids, excited. Kids movies. Kids movies. Yeah. Know. Kids movies. I'm excited. Like it's one of those things where like I don't actually I don't care, but I also yeah. do. <laughs> I, the thing is, I'm I'm. I'm I'm not I'm not going to get my hopes about it because I have with these kind of live action remakes, you know. When I heard that um, Donald Glover was playing Simba in the Lion yeah. King remake, like I was like, oh my god, fantastic! Meh, you it's know, kind of lackluster as a because which is the thing yeah. is the problem is that it, it's it's exciting because like I remember watching Hercules as a kid and loving that film, but I love that film. So to then kind of, tr- like, are you remaking it? Is it a retelling? Is it an homage? Like, you know, what is it? I think these live... The problem is they're live action remakes, isn't it? And, you know, 
you don't need to remake them live action. They're perfect as they are as, as animations. Um, but yeah, I just, Guy Ritchie doing it. I just don't, I just not would have, not what I would have, not the name I would have put, pro- I probably would have pulled out of the hat to, to do Hercules. Yeah. But yeah, we'll see. When you think of Hercules, like the original one, which is one, probably my favorite, like Disney yeah. animated film, because it has a kind of twisted and dark humor that you see a lot in Guy Ritchie's films. Is it, ja- is it James, James Woods that plays Hades? In the oh, original, I, have I think. No idea. It could, I, mean, I think yeah. it is, and he's yeah. just like that. Hades character, Hades yeah. is fantastic. I would love for Disney to give him the creative agency to do the Guy Ritchie thing because I feel like, as you said, set if it, you are set to- it in East London, yeah. you know, Brad <laughs> Charlie Hunnam, yeah. Charlie, yeah, Charlie Hunnam with his bizarre voice <laughs> can come in and play some weird character. I could see him doing. I don't know if he's tall enough. Or I mean, if he does set like, it there, there's always some random Irish character in those movies. Want, so yeah. Daryl McCormick, there you go. He's got he's got his part. There you go, one hundred percent. Like we're fun casting right now. So you know, who would you? But who would you? If you're if you're, I mean, apart from Charlie Hunnam, who? You know what? It could be. It you know, could be. Like, Ritchie, you can think about it. Like, Guy it Ritchie likes be. him enough that it could be him. But I'm trying to think who 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 can I see? I mean, obviously Danny DeVito's back as. Um, oh my god, I can't remember the character name. That's going to really annoy me. But um, yeah, I'm trying to think of who you could, who you could, kind of, who are the like hot young actors on the scene at the minute? He has Hercules, Will Poulter, maybe. Oh, that's a he's, good. He's going to be just off the back one. of Guardians of the Galaxy. Mate, I think they need they need someone massive, don't they? I mean, he could be. I feel. Off, I, like, I, that, I, I feel like he's getting. He's probably beef. getting. Oh, he's getting beefy. For, yeah, um, that's for, true. What is it? For the character that he's playing in um, Guardians of the Galaxy in the in the in the new one, so yeah, I feel like he could be true. absolutely ripped to shreds for that. Mm. I have a feeling that they're gonna go for a lesser known actor if, yeah. if, if they're doing the Aladdin thing. I don't know, but um, I would I would love to see. Basically, if they are to redo that sort of like yeah, redo that sort of film, they need to do something drastically different. Yeah. Because with Lion King, it wasn't that it was a bad film. If it was a standalone, you'd be like, yeah, it's an okay film. Yeah. But because they did nothing, it's almost like a shot for shot. Yeah, you're doing a shot for shot remake. Like yeah, that weird, that, that's useless. Remember that weird Vince Vaughn psycho oh, shot for shot remake? Like, yeah, that's yeah, useless. Just don't. Yeah, just do what Greta Gerwig's trying to do with Barbie. I think it looks ridiculous, but... It's probably going oh, to do something I mean, more interesting. Yeah, loving that photo yeah. of Ryan Gosling. My God, him with the blonde hair. Is it in the place beyond the pines that he has blonde hair as oh, well? Yeah. Like that weird, those weird kind of prison tats? Bl- blonde suits him, I have to say. Everything suits Everything him. Everything suits him. Yeah, that's, that's fair. <laughs> but what have you been watching? So that, obviously that's what I've been watching. What have you been watching? Well, I was going to say, I want to go back to the boys very quickly because yes. I have a lot of thoughts. Okay. I don't know where the, the season is going. I didn't like the last episode. Well... The last ep- well, the episode before the hero gasm because yeah. we were yeah recording a week prior. Yeah, I just feel like it's getting very bitter and very pessimistic, and yeah. like Butcher is just like and Huey like that kind of duo. Like I really don't like where this is going. Then you have Starlight like having to deal with her abuser and like Huey being a dickhead, like a toxic boyfriend, but he's using the rapper of a nice guy and. I don't know. If I were her, I would like Huey would be out that door <laughs> by I mean, now. Huey's needed to be out that door for a while. In yeah, he's annoying. I feel he's. He, I really, I really, I really like Jack Quaid. I think he's great. Yeah, and I think he's been great as Huey from the from the off. But I, as you say, I think the last couple of episodes, especially where he's using the like the that was the the kind of like compound V that wears yeah. off. And his whole thing of like, oh, I have to be the one that saves you. It's like the, the toxic masculinity has never been Huey's thing. I get that yes, there's maybe exactly. a little bit of fallback from the fact that he couldn't do anything when his last girlfriend died. But 
even still, you know. He should be using that as his superpower, like going yeah. back to everything everywhere all at once, like use his kindness and use like his way of... Even she says know. that to him. She's yeah. like, I don't need, like, I don't need a superhero. I need Huey. That's who I need. And that's what he's been really good at the last couple of seasons. But yeah, yeah. I don't know. I feel like it's, yeah, it's getting a bit listless. Um, I did like the Jensen Ackles stuff. I was going to say that was the highlight, like his yeah. monologue. And I like the fact that they introduced him where he kind of sets up his kind of tragedy as in like, I've been pumped with poison for the past, you know, like decades. And I really loved you, he says to his, uh, Laurie's character. I don't remember her name. So Crim- I really like that. They- Crimson something. Oh, there you go. Uh, so Not I like how. Something, but, you, know, you, know, you know what I mean. <laughs> you know what I mean. You know what I'm talking about. Um, I like how they set it up and he was so good in that scene. So that was the one thing that I'm quite interested to see and how they're kind of probably going to use him as a weapon uh, against Homelander. It'll be interesting. And I think the, the from this season, and I think actually since her introduction, I think Karen Fukuhara's character has just become probably the strongest in it and and one of like one of the the ones that you gravitate to her to the most her and Frenchie and like I like that that relationship is getting obviously they had that weird bizarre kind of show tunes dance scene which was I kind of skipped through I was a little bit like this is just going a little bit too kind of crazy like comic book weird for my liking even though listen you know I read comic books and I love them, but that was just a little bit too much for me. But I think her story arc is getting a lot better. The fact that she now doesn't heal, doesn't have her powers, I think is really interesting to see to see where they take that. But I feel like they've introduced a lot of like peripheral characters in this season as well that also they're not doing much with like the, the little Nina character with Frenchie, like how much more are we going to get from that? Yeah. You know, it kind of feels, it kind of feels a bit predictable. Now I could be proven massively wrong mm-hmm. here, but it kind of feels predictable of like, she doesn't have her powers anymore. Little Nina exploits this to get mm. Frenchie to do something, you know, all this kind of stuff. Cause she clearly wants Frenchie to be like her hitman again or whatever it is. I think that's where we're going. It feels like, it feels slightly kind of predictable in that way. Now, maybe I'm totally wrong, but. Which know. is annoying because like we were about to get that moment like between Kimiko and Frenzy yeah, and then we didn't and then we didn't like no. that was taken away from us. Like we were waiting for this moment for so long. And then also you have A-Train. Don't even get me started on this guy. Like he's such oh, A-Train. It's a moron. Like, the deep as well. Like they're so like there's the moronic the like I both of them. I absolutely hate the deep. It's just absolutely terrible. I'm yeah. Um, so I know I sound too harsh. Like deep down I still love the show. I deep just down. want deep down. Deep so down. I just need to see something more. And okay, I'm going to say this once. If the showrunners of the boys are listening, I just need one thing from you. Just have Mother's Milk kill Soldier Boy. Like that's Agreed. what like that's what we need for this show to be redeemed because they didn't give us the Kimiko like killing Stormfront moment in season two. So we are we were robbed. MM deserves that. He, he deserves <laughs> M-M. that retribution. So yeah, it needs to happen. I think it might, it's probably lead. I feel like, I feel like they're building, this is, this is turning into a boys prediction podcast, but I feel like they're also <laughs> possibly leading him up to then using the V at the end to try and kill Soldier Boy. You know, MM's whole thing is I'm not going to touch the comp MV, oh, even the temporary one, yes. but to then, you know, he has to become the thing that he like hates so much. Like his whole thing of like, you know, we have to draw a line because they don't, I think to kill Soldier Boy and to get revenge, MM's going to have to cross his own line. That's a really good prediction. I like it. Approved. Cool. And then, yeah, very quickly, I just, because I've been watching Obi-Wan as well, I've been watching a couple of 
a couple, a few actually, Ewan um, McGregor films that I hadn't watched before because that that's kind of my vibe now. I just go down like uh, actors' uh, filmographies and I just see how they've evolved over time. And I saw two really bad ones: Scenes of Sexual Desire. It's like a British film. It has Tom Hardy as well. Like it's very old. It's really it's just really bad. Just like is people that, is talking. Is that the one where he plays an aging musician or something, or is that a different one? No, uh, that's uh, the entire film is set in Hampstead Heath, and it's okay. basically five different couples that just talking, and it's just very meh. You have Tom Hardy, you have Mark Strong, you have McGregor, so you have quite a few uh, A-listers, but it's just so boring. Um, and then Young Adam, that I turned off halfway through. I didn't even get to watch it. It was like Tilda Swinton, um, just really bad. <laughs> Um, so I'm really painting a picture here, but I also saw a couple of better ones. Uh, Angels and Demons. I've never seen that film with Tom Hanks. Oh my God. <laughs> Tom Hanks has even come out and said now that those movies, like even he's come out and been critical of those movies. That tells you how terrible. That's one of the, that I saw that movie in the cinema mm-hmm. and that is the closest I have been to walking out. Is this the, is this like a sequel or a prequel to Da Vinci's Code? It's a sequel to Da Vinci Code. Okay. Because it's. Very where it, yeah. Ewan McGregor plays the priest or something, isn't that what he is? He's yeah. some like weird priest. But I have to say, I feel like he was the best. He's the thing best. In he's the, the best. Film. He's, he's, he's the best of a bad bunch, put it that way. Yeah. Yeah, as, and that's what I really like about him because yeah, I did get to see like quite a few bad films uh, from him. But he's kind of operating in his own bubble where he still turns up and delivers a great performance, even though the film sucks. And the Ghost Rider. Uh, with oh, uh, Chris Brosnan yes, that Pierce I hadn't Brosnan. watched in I've, ages. I haven't seen that in years. Yeah, I forgot. I completely forgot about that film. It's a solid film. It's a solid film. Yeah. And yeah, McGregor is really, really good. Uh, again, I feel I, like McGregor has yeah. a solid bar that, like, he always kind of hits. Even if the apart from maybe the apart thing. from maybe Beauty and the Beast, where he does the dodgy French accent, which I didn't really, oh, I didn't then, really understand his casting as Lumiere. But okay. um, yeah. yeah, him doing a kind of a strange French accent. But I feel oh. like yeah, he kind of sets himself a bar that he hits every time pretty much you know mm-hmm. no matter what and i think it's been great seeing him as mm. obi-wan again um and i think it's probably is it my favorite star wars series i don't know I, obviously mandalorian's mandalorian's great but for a pure like nostalgia as someone who like the prequels were the movies that i went to as a kid that absolute nostalgia is just yeah i think it's great I, I love seeing him again and hearing hearing the voice again, uh, which is which is quite cool. And I like the story they did. I think I had a bit. I think you you said after I had said that I was watching it that you were kind of worried that they were just going to go down the route of like he's in the desert and he's just looking after Luke and all this kind of stuff. But actually, they kind of take it in a different direction. Which is I won't say what direction they take it in in case you haven't watched it yet. But it is. Um, it's an unexpected one, but actually, it's one that works a lot better for like. Star Wars canon and A New Hope and all that kind of stuff. And yeah, it just doesn't make it that he's just hanging out in the desert for six episodes, which would have been probably a little bit dull and a little bit too much like Boba Fett, which nobody wants to do again. Yeah, I I really liked it as well. I mean, I haven't seen the last episode, but... It's good. It's good? I will say, it's good. good. Yeah, it ends it really well. Nice. Okay, can't wait. Um, but it's interesting because I... I am not a big Star Wars fan, and the fact that I liked it, I don't know if that says anything about the franchise. It, like, does it mean that it's too mainstream or too 
for lack of a better word, basic as a show. So it's very accessible. Is that, or is that a good thing? I think that's a good thing. I okay. think it, I think it opens Star Wars to a bigger audience. I think it would be good for what they want to do in the future because there's this talk now that obviously Taika Waititi has a Star Wars film that, you know, they're saying now in future it's not going to be this Skywalker thing that, the you know, all nine films have been based around. It's going to actually go outside of it and do, you know, stories within the Star Wars universe, which is much more interesting, you know, than there's another Skywalker back and it's like, okay, how many times, how many, how many cycles are we going to, like, are we going to get to like 30 films and we've had 10 cycles of there being a Skywalker um, trilogy? So I think it sets it up quite nicely and it like expands the world a little bit, which a lot of these series is, you know, especially Mandalorian, like Mandalorian is a great example of taking a completely new character and just setting it in that universe, which Mm -hmm. is really nice. Uh, Cool. So shall we move on to our community segment? Go for it. Cool. We're going to keep this short as we want to spend a bit more time uh, on our final scene this time around. But we did ask a fun question on Instagram the other day. And as always, you delivered. What is a cool film trivia you learned recently? I will go through some of my favorites that stood out to me. And I don't know if you've uh, had the chance to look through them. but I had, it, I had a look at a couple and some were ones that I knew and some were ones that I didn't, which was which is always quite nice. Oh, I feel like I didn't know any of them. Okay. Okay. Interesting. Um, so the first one, in Full Metal Jacket, the voice of Hotel on the radio, the Cowboys calling for tank support is actually Stanley Kubrick. Oh, I did not know that. These little things. I always appreciate it. I feel like, yeah, he's the kind of director who used to do those things. Um, That reminds me of kind of uh, the, I don't know if you know, the the, like the cameos and stuff in like Hot Fuzz. So uh, it's um, Kate Blanchett is uh, his ex at the start who's dumping him, who's behind all the... um, the surgical gear in the in the house with uh, with with the dead body is really? Kate Blanchett, the, the ex girlfriend, and the Santa Claus who stabs him in the opening scene is Peter Jackson. What? So yeah, if you go back and you watch it and you freeze frame it, you'll you'll be like, oh my god, that is Peter Jackson. So yeah, oh that's so quite cool. interesting. I like that. I like that kind of stuff where directors just like sneakily put one another in their movies. And yeah, they put kind of their get their friends and stuff in it, which is quite cool. Ah, uh, for sure. Um, in the Dark Knight, Bruce Wayne drives a Lamborghini. Murcielago, is that how you pronounce it? Okay, which is a Spanish word for bat. I did know that one. That was the one that. Damn! I knew. How yeah. did you know? Where did you hear that? Like, I feel that's like just I. Neat. I feel like <laughs> me me showing that I used to try and be manly as a teenager, but I feel like it was on like an episode of Top Gear or something where they're like, <laughs> Murcielago. It means bat. Murcielago. <laughs> and then yeah, obviously he drives it. He drives it in the movies. Yeah, that's really cool. Um, the actresses from portrait of a lady on fire were married to each other and got divorced a few weeks before the movie began filming oh, oh god <laughs> fun well i feel like now i can tell why there was so much tension between them i feel like yeah. that explains why the, everything. Why, why the performance is so yes. real by the way it's <laughs> one of my favorite uh celine scama films so if you haven't seen it please do and the last one that i really liked someone said that's a bit of a longer story, but I actually think it's really fun. Someone said, I've always enjoyed that Tom Cruise essentially saved lock stock into smoking barrels from going straight to video. Matt Vaughn contacted one of the investors asking her to contact Tom Cruise and get him to a buyer screening of the film. And strangely, he showed up. This made all of the producers pay attention. Even some senior executives showed up. And Tom Cruise was quoted as saying, this is the best movie I've seen in years. You guys would be fools not to buy it. 
And the success of that film put Guy Ritchie and um, Jason Statham on the map. So, yeah. Oh my God, so I didn't know good, that. Yeah, a piece it, of trivia. Just off the back of our last episode, proving that TC can do no wrong. Dude, everything he touches turns into gold. Which we, we, which we should say, thank you to every. It's like our most popular episode, isn't it? Yes, the TC it one. is. Thank you for thank everybody you. for listening to it. But yeah, that's good movie trivia. I didn't actually know that one. I'm trying to think of other kind of random ones that that I know off just the top of my head that I've heard. I've definitely, as I say, I've definitely heard that one. Um, but it's also a hard question because it can be quite. Even though you may know plenty of like trivia, yeah. you, I feel like you need to be specific with the, the question. one that I the one that I liked and I and also I knew as well, um, which could be. And I've rewatched this scene and it is quite interesting knowing that this happens. But in uh, in the second Lord of the Rings movie, when uh, they find the find the burning pile of Urukai looking for. Mary and Pippin, Viggo Mortensen goes and kicks the helmet and then drops to the ground screaming. He actually broke his foot doing that. Someone said um, that. Yeah, someone You're, mentioned okay. that. Yeah, and oh. so when you watch it, when he drops down screaming like that, oh, that's him breaking his foot. Which again, not to go, not to flog the Tom Cruise horse here, <laughs> but obviously, have you, I assume you've seen the footage of him breaking his ankle filming Fallout. No. So in the scene when he's chasing Henry Cavill across London and he's going across the rooftops, there's one scene where he comes on top of a roof, kind of pans around, he runs along and jumps from one building to the other. And he gets across, jumps across, then climbs up and runs off. And the scene that they use is this one. He jumped. Whatever way he put his foot out, he hits, foot hits the building and he basically shattered his ankle. Oh, shit. And that's the, the footage, again, that they use in the film. You get up and you, if you watch it again, you'll notice as he goes to run, he kind of hobbles off a little bit. Oh. And that's basically because his ankle has just gone bang. <laughs> and the dude just continues on because he's an absolute bloody legend. And I'm sure he wanted that footage to you know, that make was, it to the final there cut. There were probably better cuts of that or better shots. And he was like, no, the one where I break my ankle <laughs> definitely has to go in there. So everybody knows how hardcore I am. That sounds like TC. Yeah, but uh, yeah, no, I had known the, I had known that Lord of the Rings one, but it is a difficult, as you say, it's a difficult question. I, I went and found myself like googling like movie trivia, mm. but it was things that it's, it's like, do you know, what it's like it's like when someone tell, says, "Tell me a joke," and then you automatically forget all the jokes you yeah. know. I probably have a lot of random movie trivia rolling around in my head that in daily conversation I can just rattle it off, like, "Oh, well, did you know that?" Happens? But as soon as I was like. What movie trivia do I know? My whole brain just goes, uh. I know, because there is too much information in your brain. I feel like if I were to ask, what is your, like, what is the one Lord of the Rings trivia that you know? It would be more specific. Like, like, you, yeah, Viggo like, Mortensen breaks his foot when he kicks the helmet. Like, yeah, there the you go. The problem is there. Um, the one that I really like, and I think it's because it's just unique in a way, even though it's not my favorite Tarantino film. It's from Pulp Fiction. And you remember the scene where Mia, Uma Thurman's character, sees overdosing. Oh, yeah. So you have John Travolta's character sticking uh, the needle in. I still get so uncomfortable watching that scene just from, like, the crunch when he hits her with the... The, with the with the pen. Okay, so the film, so the uh, the scene was actually shot backwards. So what Travolta is actually doing, he's sticking the needle out, but the fi- but then oh. they kind of film the scene in reverse in action, and so you, you see, yeah, yeah, so you get the real effect of him doing it. Yes, yeah, so than- it was run backward. The film. Oh, interesting. I, I mean, it's a pretty, da- it's probably a pretty, well, not a dangerous thing to shoot, but like to be able to get the full force of like jamming that in. Ugh, no, even just thinking about it now is making me feel uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I think it's time to move on. I think let's to do the, it. We'll take it. We'll take, take a quick it. break. Take play a quick our, break. Play our little musicy bit. 
And yep. then yeah, we'll be back with we'll be back with Stan the Man and one of the grimmest films you'll ever watch in your life. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, a message from our sponsor. G.I. Jane 2. Can't wait to see. Nah, yo, hold my poodle. Hey yo, what's up? Y'all got a problem? Y'all want some of this? Without much further ado. Here we go again. Right. I think it's time to move on to our final scene. Um, I think we should actually kick off with the very first voice note that we got from a dear listener of ours, Chris, who sets up the film quite nicely. Shall we play it? Go for it. Hi, guys. This is Chris. Absolutely love the podcast and love that you've chosen to cover Kubrick. Uh, Full Metal Jacket is certainly not his best work, but uh, the worst Kubrick work is better than most directors' best works. great thing about Full Metal Jacket is this three-act structure, and you can really cover the great final scene of each of those acts, whether it's Pyle's murder-suicide, or the Tet Offensive, or the Sniper's killing and the Mickey Mouse Club march at the end. Um, all of them really bring home the juvenile nature of the Vietnam soldier, the era of young men going overseas to meet new and interesting people and killing them. Uh, again, just love the takes and keep doing good work. Oh, oh, thanks, Chris. Thank you, Chris, for your words. I mean, this is the reason we're doing the yeah. podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Um, yeah, so a quick word on Full Metal Jacket. Despite being considered one of the best war films ever, I would say, war is something that kind of creeps up on you in the film because you it's not as prominent in the first half. It kind of really gets into full, out of proportion in a way, like in the second half. And when you think about it, the truth is war is not the protagonist. It's private joker, right? Like this is the kind of, um, like this is the person that we use as our way of seeing the war and seeing the like individuality that comes with every single soldier out there. And one of the things that stood out to me, and like Chris makes a really good point here, is that Kubrick's work kind of dissociates from war as a subject matter, right? It's more of an analysis about each one of the soldiers and what is their relationship to the war, which I find very like compelling as a value proposition for a film, especially in 1997, right? Yeah. Um, what I mean, yeah, you get some, shall we say, varying mm-hmm. <laughs> reasons as mm-hmm. to why as the white people are there. I think it's interesting, uh, uh, you know, we just spoke about as well during the break about this idea that it does have, the film does have this kind of three act structure, you know, it's written like a, it's written like a play in a way if you have up to bait, you know, the whole start of basing training and then piles, uh, suicide and also killing the drill sergeant as well. Yep. Um, which is a, like a very chilling scene. <laughs> yeah. Like Vincent D'Onofrio's eyes, I feel, from that scene are burned into my head. <laughs> I kind of go to sleep and I see those, like him looking down at Joker in my uh, in my head and it's terrifying. And obviously the main final scene that we'll, we'll talk mm-hmm. about in a bit of, you know, the snipers and the Mickey Mouse clubhouse scene, yeah. which just feels so bizarre. Yeah, so, I mean, effectively, as Chris said, the film can be divided into three segments. Or maybe two, mm, well, because you have the brutalizing U.S. training in the first half, in a way, on the first um, part of the film. And then you have Vietnam in the second, right? 
But some people argue that the sniper is sometimes called its own segment in the end. Because that's like a long scene. I mean, it does take place in Vietnam, but like it's kind of its own thing in a way. So this is why people have been arguing that the film has three final it, scenes. It feels like it could end, as you say, three points. Like pile suicide, then when they're being interviewed is it like by yes. Stars and Stripes after they've uh, taken over the town. And then it goes into the forward offensive and the the kind of this long drawn out sniper scene where everybody just keeps going absolutely mm-hmm. mad. Mm-hmm. And the common denominator is a Joker because he's uh, he's the he's only character throughout. that is there throughout. And I would say that we, at least I, didn't get to realize that he's the actual protagonist until the end of the first half, which is when... Um, Pyle, uh, what's Vincent D'Onofrio's character? Gober Pyle? Gober Pyle. Yeah, uh, commit Commits suicide, right? Um, it's when I realized, oh, he's not our protagonist. It's actually Private Joker, Joker that we're yeah. looking at. I thought that was quite, I mean, that's Kubrick for you, but I thought that was quite um, interesting. So for the purpose of our conversation, I would like us to start with an end, <laughs> with a final segment. The actual end. <laughs> um, so to recap, in the last few scenes, after the men have identified the injured sniper, we get to see them rounding up with a commander rooting for punishing the sniper with something worse than death, essentially leaving, the, leaving her to rats. And Private Joker, we remember, was against the idea, seemingly putting himself in the me versus the world situation when tried to fight against his teammates. Uh, and I feel like this is something that could be perceived, oh, I need to prove my masculinity right now, right? Because you have everyone wooing for him. So you have Animal Mother, his commander, willing to allow a mercy kill only if Joker was the one to pull the trigger. And doing so would mean that the Joker for the very first time would take away someone's life. But if he decided not to do it, the suffering sniper would die in a very cruel way. And ultimately, as you remember, Joker chose the former, perhaps the better option in the two equally, maybe not equally, but like really bad scenarios. Two bad scenarios, yeah. And we then see his teammates rather happy, I would say, as Joker finally kind of stepped into their, like, we have idea that, yeah, of man- the, the weird round the circle kind of, uh, round the circle of soldiers, don't we? That was so more, like, so morbid, as in, like, you are celebrating someone's death. It, it felt like a right, in a way. Well, it's, I think, and Induction it's, right. it's, well, like, it's, it, I think what it does really well, and especially the, the, when when the camera focuses on Joker, when we get obviously you know uh, that's when we start the second half of the film, we're in Vietnam and Joker's talking about you know wanting to see real action and wanting to get back into it. And when they're in the when they're in the tent, can't remember the name of the the, the soldier, but he says you can tell when someone someone's seen real action because they have that thousand yard stare. You know they like they see clearly they yes. see what it is and there's, so there's two, i feel like there's two kind of callbacks in the film that it doesn't really mention it first is that one because it focuses on joker and he is looking through the camera that is it he has this thousand yard stare thing of he gets what it is that he was told he was lacking in the yeah. earlier in the film what he didn't yeah. what he didn't have and and what he said he so clearly wanted and and i and i think almost the thousand yard stare is this thing that you uh all the and and it's a it's a comment on you know what vietnam was in general of all these young soldiers going to fight in this war thinking they knew what they wanted but then when the realization hits them you get that 
blank stare. And the second thing is obviously the one that is there throughout, well, throughout kind of the second half of the film is he has the peace badge and he has Born to Kill in the helmet. And he, as, as he says to the general, you know, it's the duality of man. You have that clear change where the duality of man, he shoots what's clearly a child, the sniper, as a mercy kill. And then the next thing you know, he's screaming and shouting the Mickey Mouse Clubhouse scene as they walk back towards the base. And, you know, it's this weird duality within the soldier's personality of being able to do this, but then this kind of bizarre nature of singing, like, kids' theme songs. It has these two kind of very uh, morbid, but very kind of well-thought-through cutbacks. That doesn't, it doesn't have to mention it. You see it in the way he looks and then in what, in what he's doing. What does... Uh, what did that show signify for you because it is in that moment where we actually see him having that thousand yards there i think it's where i think it's i think it's the moment when joker realizes that all those jokes that he told he's not going to tell those jokes anymore because it's not funny he realizes that it isn't funny Mm -hmm. you know all those jokes through basic training and his time writing for stars and stripes not actually being in the action as soon as he's done that you know possibly killed that first person that's when he knows he realizes what it is and and obviously in his voiceover he says you know the most important thing is is that we're not dead we Mm, get to i get to go home we're alive that's it it's not funny doesn't matter but you're alive Mm -hmm. that's what it is that's Mm -hmm. the that's the nature of it and i yeah that's a really good point because when i think of when i go back to that shot and you think of you know, that kind of blank stare in a way, it almost comes back, which I feel like is the, 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 the main theme of the film, is that feeling of surrender and dissociation. Like, you have to dissociate in order to do, like, the brutal killings and it's why turn they, yourself... It's why they all have nicknames. They don't refer to one another exactly. in their first name because it disassociates from that, you know. Joker, uh, uh, like, I know it's just the actor, but Matthew Modine didn't kill that sniper. Mm-hmm. Joker did. So when you go back, when you go back to the real world and you have to try and kind of come to terms with those things, you at least have the idea of, oh, well, Joker did that. I'm like, I'm not, I'm not Joker anymore. This is this person. Yes. Yeah, exactly. So at this point we see him, one, turning into that kind of like cold-blooded war machine. Like, I feel like that's, that's the very first skill and there are many to come. I feel like Unfortunately, that, that, yeah. that is my uh, interpretation anyway. And it is at this moment where he makes a decision to not return to yet yeah, not return really. And the reason I go back to dissociation is because even though he makes it out alive physically, I mean, he survives as he said, he's alive at the same time. I do think that at this very moment, something died inside of him. And I think you, you, I mean, in, in real world terms, you do hear a lot of, you know, uh, there's been a lot of films made about Vietnam and the post effects of that. And yes. that a lot of, uh, you know, people, people came back from Vietnam, but they weren't necessarily the same person that they were when they went there. Mm-hmm. And you have to be, I mean, and you have to be able to tell a very specific story to yourself in order to survive. And like what he says in the very end, in terms of like, it, it almost like he justifies the killing by saying, oh, but at least I'm alive. But is life worth living if you live it in that way? I mean, that's a very rhetorical question, like very philosophical. But if you think about it, it's like you're trying to be grateful for things that you're not 
Like, I think they're that's, not worth being grateful That's Joker's for. whole thing, though, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, Joker's basically feels like a philosophy student who thought, okay, yes. I've, done, I've done my philosophy degree. I've read all of these books. Now I want to go and experience you know they always talk about in the movie like as you said before like going to meet new people and see vietnam and mm. you know all these kind of these kind of bizarre justifications that they gave but actually just thinking about it just thinking about it they're now talking about it one of the first things that the drill sergeant says to him uh is show me your war face and oh, he yeah. does that bizarre kind of oh, yeah, scream right. yeah and actually it's interesting to think about it in the that actually that's the war face that he thought he would have going into Vietnam being the mm. killing machine the war face that he actually has is this thousand yard stare it's not the person running in screaming you know with this really over exaggerated face it's a blank expression you know almost dead behind the eyes and how that that joker is a very different joker from the one at the end you know I think that war face uh reference makes perfect sense when you think about the the moments prior to him shooting the sniper where you know like the sniper is trying to shoot him and he kind of loses control over the weapon of his weapon do you remember that i feel like it's at this oh, point his, his gun jams yeah 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 so I, I feel like it's at this point where he realizes i am not the tough guy like i'm not a soldier i'm not a tough guy like this isn't i'm not saying it's, this not, isn't, it's not for him it's not for him and i think he's kind of been i don't say faking it but like he's kind of uh, what's the word like by him like going down the journalist route like he's just trying to do all the you know for lack of a better word war things but like without doing the war bit like you know he's trying to be selective with what he's doing and it's at this moment where he has no choice because like it's either literal death or it's social death which means getting rejected by his in-group that is his teammates and that would be horrific because at the first half of the film he's just he he saw what happened to um gober pile i hope i'm saying this correctly yeah, gomer pile gomer pile sorry uh, gomer pile um in terms of like being bullied and all of that because he wasn't able to you know show up and be yeah. you know a top soldier so he's like Am I going to have his... Fu- I feel like in his head he's going, am I going to have his future maybe? like Or like his um, way of approaching like the next few years of my life if I don't comply? And I think eventually he complied, which is why like one of the questions that... Um, one of the things I wanted to discuss is like, how do we think the first half of the film influenced the ending ultimately? And when I say the ending, I don't just mean the sniper bit, but also like the actual like you know, his uh, final lines in the film and also the Mickey's... Um, At least how, we're still alive in the Mickey Mouse Clubhouse bit. Yeah, yeah. How, like, what are the things that kind of stood out to you from the first film that you feel informed the second half? Because even though they're two different films, at the same time, I feel like this, the first informed the second. I think the, I think the themes are... The, obviously, the themes are very similar, but they're just in different... They're just in uh, kind of... Uh, it's almost a Joker kind of becomes pile in that last kind of 10 15 minutes this thing that yeah. he'd you know this person that he'd beaten up with soap wrapped in a sock and all these awful things that he had done and but then you know he's sees almost what pile sees you know when he shoots the drill instructor and 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 and, and um then joker has that first kill i mean you could probably put the two of them side by side of pile sitting on the toilet staring at joker and then joker uh. stare at the end 
and you're probably looking at like the same shot with just two different actors you know as we as we said it's this kind of long-running narrative of of you know it's all just a tame it's all just a big joke up until yeah that final scene and even you know it is kind of crazy to think that he's seen one of the people in his platoon blow their brains out in front of him mm-hmm. he still goes to vietnam mm-hmm. still seen the horrors that can happen in boot camp yes and yet he still goes yeah i'm get, i'm getting on the plane mm-hmm. i'm 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 gone like i'm i'm shipping out and obviously a, you know a, a lot of the it's interesting that they you know they use the mickey mouse clubhouse one but it's you know a lot of what they do in training is sing and they do talk about that you know the, the reason soldiers sing in battle is because it sinks you up you know, everybody's singing, they're breathing at the same pattern, so it syncs up your breath and stuff like that, and it makes you feel more like a unit. And it's this, it, it kind of is this thing of, you know, the soldiers are individual, but the unit is a kind of an impregnable thing. And, you know, the drill sergeant talks about that quite a lot of like, you know, it's all about the Marine Corps. It's, you know, it's, it's the, it's not about the individual, it's about the group. Well, that's the thing, because that's what the film is about. Uh, and I feel like this is what unites and connects the first half with the second half is the running theme in terms of individuality and, more importantly, the need to cancel it, right? That I mean, that's the film. Because uh, if you think of the first half, you have the very first, like, the opening scene uh, where you have, you know, the... Oh, they're almost kids, like you know, soldiers kind of shaving, and each yes. one of them is trying to like do their own like unique look. And I mean, what does this even mean? And then you also have Hartman saying, you know, straight out saying, "You're not even like while you're in training, you're not even human beings, yeah. right?" Which is like, okay, we're Here we at, go. like, okay, thank you. Um, so this is kind of sets the scene for what it's about. To happen in a way and yeah I mean I know we want to talk about the very final scene in a second but the the ultimate message from the first half is that you're just a weapon and you may as well use yourself and I feel like this is what Joker does in the end he uses himself as a way to survive and he's a weapon one of the things that they you know they keep telling they keep telling him that basic training is you know the rifle's just a weapon yes you're the machine that does the killing. Mm-hmm. You know, this is my rifle. There are many like it, but this is mine. Without my rifle, I am nothing. Without my without my rifle, I am nothing. Oh God, <laughs> yeah. I mean that. Yeah, those lines. I mean, it's, it's intense, piercing. It puts you in that. It puts you in that mindset. Yeah. Um, cool. I would love to talk about the actual final scene of the film. It's interesting because I think for many viewers. Ending the film with a Mickey Mouse smart song may seem a bit strange or odd. Shall we play the song as a reminder for people? Go for it. We have nailed our names in the pages of history. Enough for today. We hump down to the perfume river to set in for the night. We play fair and we work hard and we're in harmony. yeah so we see the the marines march towards their camp right um i think they're yeah they're marching they're marching down to the river to 
kind of set up camp for the night, yeah. Singing the Mickey Mouse March song and taking place in 1967 during the Vietnam War or American War, war if you're Vietnamese. Uh, all that happened in Full Metal Jacket was only around 10 years younger than the Mickey Mouse Clubhouse TV show, which aired in the US from 1955 to 1959. So if you think about it, the majority of the soldiers, though it's never clearly stated, were in their 20s, meaning just a decade ago, they were still young boys like watching the watching, Mickey Mouse Clubhouse. Through their like innocent eyes, like childhood yeah. eyes. And now the eyes that they have now are just like the, those lifeless eyes of murderers and I don't know, the optimist in me says that they're singing this song as a way to kind of maybe reclaim like that innocence and that childhood that kind of reminds them that there is still hope to find that like more innocent version that was, I want to say, was or is out there for them. But I don't know if I'm just being too sentimental. I think it's, yeah, I mean, uh, it's a coping mechanism for them, isn't it? It's, uh, it's them using that to ignore the burning surroundings and the burning buildings and the dead bodies that are around them yeah singing this kind of random kids tv song Mm -hmm. you know but you look at the thing is why that specific song because the thing at the same time you have so many positive memories with that song and i feel like it's very for me it would be very hard to dissociate like it would be one thing to just sing a song that I have zero connect emotional connection with, but they grew up with Mickey Mouse, like these, you know, boys now guys, I guess. So I don't, I don't know. I don't know if it's them like clinging on to something, or uh, maybe it's a bit of both, like dissociate with or try to cover the negative with something like that's very positive. Uh, yeah, like, I, I, I think it's, I think it's sing the song so you don't have to think about everything you've just done. Remember, you know, remember these nice kids TV shows and desensitize yourself to everything that you've just done by just remembering oh but like when we go back to the states there's mickey mouse's clubhouse and all these amazing things that we get to remember who we were but that's not you know that's not the case everything that you do Mm -hmm. stays with you Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um i know we have another listener christopher who had a great take on the final scene so let's play it in the ending, they're like marching and they're singing the uh, the Mickey Mouse song while everything is on fire. And what I think is so interesting about that is like you're seeing like the the culmination like of this dehumanization process, as I like to think of it. Anyways, because slowly over the uh, the first half of the movie, we're really seeing you know their morale and their um, independence really being broken down and i think that's what makes like a gomer Pyle's character so like interesting he's like refusing to be another like cog in the machine and so we're able to relate to him actually a lot more and i think also that's why people like the first half of the movie so much more than the second half we're able to really laugh and relate to kind of the lighthearted nature that's in the first half of the film and what makes the 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 second half i think so like interesting and the reason i think people don't actually like it that much is because we can't relate to that it's not meant to for us to laugh it's for us to really take a look at what's happened to these people because they're not you know they're broken down they're 
cogs in the machine at this point. Um, so it's very, very sad to see how it's so normalized for them. They're laughing while the world's on fire and singing Mickey Mouse. And it's disturbing in a sense to us because we can't relate. But to them, it's just the new normal. Laughing while the world's on fire is a very good point. Oh, man. I mean, that, that, and that's Some people the, just want to see the world burn. And that, Batman. God. But that's the twisted contradiction that I feel like exists in every single Kubrick film. Like, he really likes to take comedy and just twist it on its head with something very either violent or aggressive or brutal. Morbid, and think, yeah. Morbid. I think he's just doing that with a clockwork orange just brilliantly oh, yeah. i mean it's just, um but it's in, it, as um we were listening to christopher's voice note i was thinking to go to go back to the mickey mouse song as kids we're kind of told what to do right and then you grow up as a young adult and you start to like have more self-awareness and maybe maybe a bit more agency and at war this guys realize that this is not the case like you follow orders well you i don't do, even yeah. i don't even know if that they don't realize i think it's the whole thing is in that in the training is that you reprogram them yes you break them you down break to build them, down. them up you as you say you break them down into something that's not human and then build you them build up. them back up into the human that you want them to be this personality that's developed over 20 years through childhood teenage years and school you break that down you get them to forget all of the, any of the morals or the beliefs that they may have held and you turn them into a machine. That's a very good point. And I think the thing is, the thing about Joker is, is the Joker kind of, he tries to maintain some of that up until, that, the, film. And, until yeah. the end. He tries to maintain those elements of his personality that are still, I'm, you know, I'm a cynic. Mm-hmm. You know, if you ask him, you know, he doesn't really believe in the war. You know, every time he's asked why he's there, it's always a joke. Clearly mm-hmm. he doesn't believe in why he's there. You know, he's almost there as a... It's hard to really explain because he doesn't really say why he's there. But he's, you know, it sticks with him throughout, you know, piled by the end, but just the end of that first half. He's a machine. He knows how to clean his rifle. He can shoot. That's all. That's all he does. That's all he knows. And that goes horribly wrong for him. Yeah, and it's why you see all of the soldiers giving the superficial answers to the interviews. Like, we hate Vietnam, and like, we are stronger. Like, you just, yeah, it's all like propaganda. Maybe that's not the right word, but like, they've been fed that kind of information. They've been fed that kind of belief system uh, in a matter of months. And yeah, it's kind of disturbing. And the thing is to go back to like the very final scene when we have the marching. When you march, you supposedly you stand for something, right? And I think that if you think about it, like the soldiers were told that they are fighting to bring freedom, right? That was the story. And unbeknownst to them, they're also helping the US to conquer like foreign countries and kind of spread the American dream and imperialism. And um, we actually have a really interesting voice note from Tim who's my online BFF, comedian of cinema, <laughs> uh, who also talks about the ending and he touches on this idea of American culture and dream. So let's put it on. What's going on, Sophie, Ben, and Simon? Uh, it's Tim, comedian of cinema. When I heard you guys were going to be talking Full Metal Jacket, I was so stoked. It's my probably my favorite Kubrick film. I can watch it anytime, anywhere, um, which might let you know a little bit too much about my my mental health, but you know what? I'm going to just cut to the fucking chase. Uh, 
Kubrick fashioned the ultimate satire on the American dream and American culture at that time through the use of Matthew Modine's private Joker. You know, you have this sarcastic, unrelenting character experience these horrifying, horrifying things. And he goes from pretending to be a tourist, wanting to visit the, the, the jewel of Southeast Asia to succumbing to the horrifying trauma uh, that these that these soldiers in, endured, you know, the the organism that is the Marine Corps in the end of the movie, they find you know a weird power through that trauma when they're singing the Mickey Mouse song after such a horrifying moment amongst like you know uh, a smoldering rubble and fire, um, while Private Joker's you know recalling dreams of Mary Jane Rottencrotch. It's like it's the ultimate. Show, like a showing of the mirror on on American culture and society at the time, and the idea that you were making people to be destroyed overseas, and that's the only outcome of of that war, and it truly is. And it's just, yeah, I I fucking adore this movie from top to bottom. I'm so looking forward to to the podcast. Um, all right, see ya. Thank Bye. you, Tim. Yeah, yeah thanks, Tim. This is uh, very well put, right? Yeah. If you think about it. And I also find that there is a lot of allegory between the lyrics of the song and what we witness in the second half of the film. So you have lyrics like, we'll have fun, we'll meet new faces, we'll do things and we'll go places. And then you have like the soldiers like having fun, like with booze and, you know, sex workers. Going new places. Going new places, you know, traveling, um, having a lot of fun. And new faces that they might just get murdered down the line. So there's that. And then all around the world, we're marching. And then the very end, you have See You Real Soon, which is almost like Kubrick kind of giving up a, a piece of the future in a way, because a lot of them are going to be seeing each other in heaven or hell, depending on what you actually believe. Yeah. So yeah, quite terrifying stuff. Now, I feel like we talked about the the very final lines from Joker. Is there anything you'd like to to add? I don't think so. I, I think as I think as we said, you know, his 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 ending monologue is that final realization of I wanted to come here, I wanted to see these places and do these things, but at the end of the day, the most important thing is that I'm still alive. Mm-hmm. That's all that matters. I'm alive and they're not, and I get to go home. It's the realization that this whole thing is pointless. Mm-hmm. All that he's been told of, you know, you get a lot of different people telling him why they're in Vietnam and what they're doing it for. You know, you had the general telling him of, you know, what is it? In, inside every Vietnamese person, there's like a, a God-loving American or, you know, all these all these kind of things. And that's him going, no, all of this is bullshit. All that's bullshit. I'm mm-hmm. not here for the right reasons. And the only thing that's important right now is that I get home. I'm still alive. Yeah. That's it. Mm-hmm. And from what I read and from people that I have either critiqued the film or things that I've heard you know, on my page, people are not fully sold on that final line because it's so contradictory. But I feel like you're actually probably missing the point if you if you I think like... that I think the point is is that like he is now he, it's not it's not contradictory. It's a it's a realization of. Mm-hmm. You know, Joker's, he's not contradicting himself. He's, he'd been lying to himself the whole time, 
trying to justify why he was there and what he thought he wanted you know he says he thinks he wants this action yes you know he wants to go to the front line he wants to see some stuff you know and as soon as he does he realizes doesn't matter what i want i does agree not matter. yeah and i think it represents kubrick's point of view and intent brilliantly because he has famously said that when asked about the film he said the film is not pro-war, it's not anti-war, it's the way things are. Yeah, it's a, it's, it, it is a, I mean, it's just a very honest mm-hmm. telling of how it was. Mm-hmm. It's not glorifying it, it's just saying, this is what happened. Mm-hmm. This, is, this, is, this was the, the realisation for a lot of young men who went halfway across the world looking to travel the world and meet new people and that was the dream that was probably sold to you by the army you know join the army travel the world still done today adverts still talk about you see an ad for the army it talks about going and seeing the world and seeing new places Mm -hmm. still does the same thing we still sell the same propaganda to people it's the same it's just a different war which is kind of terrifying Terrifying. really terrifying and really scary is that you know you, you you look at what joker talks about and all the different characters talk about and why they went and what they're going for and what they told they were told they'd be doing we still do it Mm -hmm. to to get people to join the army we still say the same old thing and you know yeah it's uh i guess the scary thing about it is is that the message is the same it's just different wars now Mm -hmm. you know unfortunately Yeah. yeah the message of why people join the army and the realization of what it's like when you get there is possibly still the same mm-hmm. because we still use the same ideas seeing the world making friends becoming part of a unit mm-hmm. you know finding those people who don't feel Protect. like part of yeah. something and you tell them you join the army and the army is a family we are a unit we do these things together and that's what a lot of you know you can see it you know throughout the film like pile is someone who's just look pile almost feels like he's just looking for friends yes the only reason he's come to basic training is because he's like, I've never fit in anywhere. I'm six foot whatever. I'm strong. And the army makes sense for me because I haven't fit in anywhere else. But the army doesn't matter if you fit in outside because the army makes you fit in with them. It's a pretty kind of scary realization. Yeah. That we're, we're, we're still in that. We're still in that kind of cycle. Speaking of now, a really cool, fun trivia for the ending. And we can end with that is um, I heard Matthew Medin said in a 2017 radio interview i think that kubrick's initial intent was to have joker killed in the end like he he was supposed to die and then matthew convinced him not to because and kubrick was like okay tell me why he was like i was gonna say pity to me of all directors (laughs) of all directors to be able to convince to not kill someone yeah and modin made the point around the real horror of war is doing is doing the city things and like the morbid things that you're doing and still like getting to see your friends die and like killing kids and killing women and still surviving and living with that uh, information in your head and your heart and your soul. And yeah, Kubrick was sold and he changed the ending. So Fair play to Matthew Modine. Fair play, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's yeah, it's, uh, I think it's the right ending. I, I think, think it's so. the right ending. Yeah, it definitely, I mean... Him dying is, is like very Hollywood, you know. Yeah, it's yeah. too Hollywood. He goes out in a blaze of glory and it, it, like it almost glorifies Joker mm-hmm. in a way, you know. Um, gives him gives him the hero's death and that doesn't really work. But for a film that is a hard slog to watch, you know, uh, it's, it's not easy to get through, but it, it definitely ends in the best way possible. If he had died at the end, 
you know, if it had been him instead of Cowboy, it's a very different ending to a film and it sends a, probably sends a very different message. Yes, I agree. It's the right ending. Nice. I think we solved the ending again we did. with the help of our friends. Thank you so much for sending your voice notes. They really put a lot of things in perspective for us. Yeah. And I've been, if you have any voice notes on any movies that we have coming up that we're going to review, feel free to send them in or yes, any, please. any more voice notes on any takes we've given. No hot takes in this episode. Yes. Apart from that Hugh McGregor has a, has a, has a, has a, <laughs> has a watermark for how good he normally is. People will probably come in and be like, he's terrible. What are you, what are you talking about? We love McGregor. <laughs> we didn't mention his good films, but you know, we wanted exactly. to, yeah, take a different. Everybody loves Moulin Rouge. <sighs> I mean, don't get me started this episode of that film alone. Um, yes, yeah, so I keep on sending them. We now have a WhatsApp number as well. So like you can pick and choose whatever you like. Uh, for a chance to get featured in our episode. Yeah, that was the show. If you made it this far, you know what to do. Subscribe to wherever you're listening and leave us a five-star review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. It helps the podcast get discovered by many more cinephiles like yourself. I don't want to give away too much about our next episode, but we're going to have our very first interview with someone oh, very special. Shit, oh, special guest. It's and maybe it may or may not be, be you and McGregor. Ritchie? I don't know. I can't confirm. Uh, <laughs> and the Rumors fi- have it. Rumor it's Guy Ritchie. It. Yeah, well, I'm going to DM him very quickly. And the final scene we're going to be talking about is from the short film that won the Oscar last year, Riza Hatt's The Long Goodbye. So if you haven't seen it yet, please do. We will be back in two weeks. Bye. Oh, look, a message from our sponsor. Did you like it? Did you like that? Did I like it? I loved it. I I had no idea you could milk a cat. I have nipples, Greg. Could you milk me? Good morning. Morning. Good morning. Oh, and in case I don't see you, good afternoon, good evening, and good night.